This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, real and unreal. Bo Willimon is our special guest for a compelling conversation on the intersection of Washington, the media, filmmaking, and the business of television. When it comes to politics, Bo knows. He's a veteran of the campaigns for Chuck Schumer, Hillary Clinton, Howard Dean, and Bill Bradley. The first 13 episodes of Bo's show, House of Cards, were uploaded to Netflix on February 1st. And ever since, millions of new fans have been binging on the feast of Kevin Spacey's soliloquies. I'm finally caught up, but there's no one around the water cooler to talk about the implosion of the Russo campaign. Bo Willimon, on the other hand, could. So now we turn to the House Majority Whip, Representative Frank Underwood of South Carolina's 5th Congressional District, proud son of Gaffney, where you shouldn't slap a man chewing tobacco, and esteemed graduate of the Sentinel, we welcome to our microphones Frank's creator, showrunner Bo Willimon. Bo, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks for having me, Josh. Wow. What's it been like the last month that this show has been available to Netflix viewers for you? Uh, It's been incredible. We didn't know what would happen on February 1st. We certainly hoped a lot of people would watch it. We didn't know how many would binge or if any would binge at all. Uh, And, uh, uh, you know, we had high hopes, but uh, I think they've exceeded, you know, what's happened has exceeded all of our expectations. Uh, You know, I, I feel lucky that uh, I have season two to focus on so that, um, you know, none of it goes to my head. Uh, So we've been hard at work uh, over the past uh, couple months uh, trying to make season two even better than season one. Well, before we get to to season two, let's talk about season one and creation of the pilot. I want to hear a little bit of Frank Underwood as he introduces himself uh, to his audience, to to us, the viewers, at the inaugural party uh, for President Walker. Check, check, check. Linda Vasquez, Walker's chief of staff. I got her hired. She's a woman, check, and a Latina, check. But more important than that, she's as tough as a $2 stick. Check, check, check. When it comes to the White House, you not only need the keys in your back pocket, you need the gatekeeper. As for me, I'm just the lowly House majority whip. I keep things moving in a Congress choked by pettiness and lassitude. My job is to clear the pipes and keep the sludge moving. But I won't have to be a plumber much longer. I've done my time. I've backed the right man. Give and take. Welcome to Washington. Bo Willimon, tell us about the creation of Frank Underwood. Uh, Well, House of Cards is uh, based on a BBC miniseries that aired in 1990 starring Ian Richardson playing Francis Urquhart. Uh, that was a total of 12 episodes over three years. And that itself was based on uh, novels written by Lord Michael Dobbs, who truly created Francis Urquhart, the character. Um, All that said, uh, when David Fincher approached me three years ago to work on this, uh, we both agreed that we wanted to do a complete reinvention. Uh, We wanted to steal a lot of great stuff from the BBC version in the novels, but we didn't want to feel uh, bound to them or limited by them. Uh, And certainly the world has changed quite a bit in the past uh, 20 plus years since the BBC version aired. Uh, Add to that 
add to that the fact that we are setting the show in D.C. And, and you know we're dealing with American politics and American culture. It meant really thinking about Francis Underwood in a new way. Uh, first of all, we named him Underwood instead of Urquhart because I don't. Urquhart doesn't really work. Yeah, in the US a, show, that's a name of Scottish or, origin, um, and I, I haven't run across many Urquharts or any uh, to speak of uh, here in the states. Uh, and then you, you know you start thinking about um, how is our guy uh, going to be quintessentially American. And I started with a very simple place. Uh, you quoted it earlier. There's a catchphrase from the BBC version. You very well might think that I couldn't possibly comment. And I wanted to keep that in a couple instances as an homage. Uh, but Americans don't speak that way idiomatically uh, unless uh, you take a South Carolina upcountry accent uh, and, and you put it in that person's mouth. You very well might think that I couldn't possibly comment. Then it, it rolls off the tongue. It works. So out of that very simple arbitrary choice, that led to Gaffney. Um, my dad's from South Carolina. I spent a lot of time down there, and he suggested Gaffney as the town. Uh, and you start thinking of the American mythology of anyone can be president, anyone can come from nothing. Hope, uh, Arkansas. Yeah, come from a town called Hope and become president of the United States. And that made a lot more sense than Francis Urquhart, who came from priv privilege and aristocracy. Uh, so layer by layer, he became our own. And then, of course, uh, completing the picture was Kevin Spacey himself. Uh, I don't think the show would be worth doing if, if we had, hadn't uh, gotten him on board. So thank God he did come on board. Let's get right to your main character, and then I want to come back to the origination. Let's hear uh, the person who plays Frank Underwood, Kevin Spacey, an actor who we've admired for decades, in the role that preceded, I think, his appearance on House of Cards as Shakespeare's Richard III. The thousand hearts are great within my bosom. Advance our standards. Set upon our foes. March on. Join bravely. Let us do it pal now. If not to heaven, then hand in hand to hell! David Milch, while he's writing Deadwood, in incorporates a lot of Shakespearean uh, tense and, and pacing. As you're writing the pilot episode for House of Cards. Are you thinking about both Kevin as Richard III and also as Shakespeare the Bard? Uh, absolutely. Uh, Richard III is one of the great plays, one of the great villains, uh, and Kevin was doing a nine-month world tour prior to shooting. Uh, so I had the great privilege to see him on closing night at the Old Vic in London uh, and closing night here in New York at, at BAM, uh, and it greatly influenced the writing. Uh, not just Richard III, but also Macbeth yeah. and Othello, uh, Othello Hamlet. Uh, you, you know, you, you can look at a lot of uh, Shakespeare's plays as inspiration for a story like ours. Uh, and in a lot of the conversations I first had with Kevin, um, we were referring to Richard III uh, consistently. So, uh, you know, one of the advantages to him being on that nine-month world tour as well is that it, it gave uh, it gave me uh, nine months to work with my writers to to write the entire first season before we shot a single frame. So we knew everything we were doing in those 13 hours uh, before the cameras started rolling, and, and that was a luxury. Before we get to David Fincher coming to you, you guys approaching various outlets and then eventually coming to Netflix, tell us about your... Uh, Bo Willimon in the 90s, Columbia University, dabbling in politics. Where did your sensibilities as a writer uh, come from? Your dad was in the Navy. What did your mom do? How did it, how did it end you up at Columbia? Uh, my dad spent 31 years in the Navy. In fact, his uh, last commission was at the Philadelphia shipyard where he was XO. So that's, that's where that bit of the storyline comes from. I lived on that base. Uh, we moved to St. Louis after he retired and wanted to go to law school at WashU. And, and I had a great um, uh, upbringing in St. Louis. My, my teachers there, I think, really instilled uh, a passion for the arts. Uh, I, I you and John Hamm. 
That's right. John Hamm and I went to the same high school. Uh, when I was in seventh grade, he was a senior, uh, and uh, he came back when I was uh, when I was a senior to teach drama with our great drama teacher Wayne Solomon. Um, I didn't take one of his classes. I was studying with Wayne, but we were both in uh, John Hamm and I were both in Stage Door together. I saw him recently at a at a Bros event and run into him from time to time. I'm so thrilled for all his success. He's so talented. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, when I came to New York to go to Columbia, I thought I was going to be a painter. I mean, that's what I majored in. Um, and I had I didn't take any writing classes. I didn't have any inkling that I'd be a writer. Were you living uh, like Zoe Barnes at the time? Well, I, I was living in Columbia. Uh, Columbia dorms, which uh, if you've seen a few of them, <laughs> make make Zoe's apartment look envious, uh, <laughs> depending upon what your lottery ticket is. Uh, but uh, when I when I graduated, um, I had an impulse to write. I needed to do something different than painting. I, I needed to try something else, something I would fail at, just to sort of shake up the molecules. Uh, and I started dipping my toe in writing for theater. Theater was something I always loved uh, and ended up... Uh, by hook or by crook getting into grad school at Columbia and, and really from that point on I knew that was my vocation that's where what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing but along comes Jay Carson what happens there so Jay Carson uh, who is a, a political uh, wunderkind of sorts um, uh, I met my freshman year at Columbia we were rowing crew together both had hair down to our shoulders there's probably some damning photos um, from that time uh, but uh, he convinced me in the summer between junior and senior year to work on Chuck Schumer's campaign. And I had been politically interested, but no more than the average person. And, and I said yes, mostly on a lark. I thought it'd be a fun thing to do. Well, it was an extraordinary campaign. Uh, Chuck came from seemingly out of nowhere uh, to defeat Geraldine Ferraro in the primary, uh, and then eventually uh, a very powerful incumbent, Alphonse D'Amato, uh, in the general. Uh, and that adrenaline, uh, that sense of purpose, uh, the, the, the feeling you got from believing that you had changed the world in your own small way uh, was addictive. So, were, were you in Manhattan and New York City area most of the campaign, or did they deploy you around the state? All over. I mean, we were mostly based out of New York City. Uh, that's where Jane and I were. were both going to school at the time. Our classes suffered when we stopped going to classes. But, uh, I, you know, there were times where they'd say, you got to get all these yard signs up to Albany by 6 a.m. tomorrow, hop in a van and do an overnight drive. So whether it's Rochester, Albany, Buffalo, um, Long Island, Westchester, you name it, we were all over the state. Any peach? moments like uh, Frank Underwood experienced uh, that back in Gaffney on your first New York's campaign? Uh, n- n- not necessarily a peachoid moment, but, um, you know, I think that the Kern debacle that happens, uh, there was something very similar. Uh, in the show, uh, Michael Kern is up for Secretary of State, and Francis maneuvers things in such a way that, that he's taking flack for comments he wrote in college uh, or, or may not have written at all uh, that make people, you know, uh, pro-Israel people angry, pro-Palestine people angry. Well, on the Schumer-Damato campaign, uh, D'Amato made a comment at a fundraiser, I believe in Flatbush, where he called uh, Chuck Schumer a putzhead, which in Yiddish means a head, you know? And uh, and so... Post in the Daily News have something to say about that. Yeah. So, I mean, in the in the way that that was spun, uh, certainly 
we on the Schumer campaign use that to our advantage. Um, it could be construed as an anti-Semitic remark, yeah. uh, and uh, and D'Amato suffered terribly for it because at first he denied. I believe he denied saying it, but then there was proof that he had. Then he refused to apologize for it. Then he was forced to apologize, and seem you know almost overnight he lost ten points, and that happened very close to the general election itself, and. And we won by du- double digits. That sort of moment um, certainly contributed largely uh, to the victory. Sidebar, were you shocked by Senator uh, Hagel uh, having the same tactics applied to him as as is in your episode two or three? Not shocked. Uh, I, I mean, th- these sort of things happen in politics all the time. There were a lot of people emailing or tweeting me saying, how did you know? And, and we're not prophetic. Uh, these sort of uh, scenarios, I think, are cyclical uh, in the political world. Uh, so a year and a half ago, when we were first working on this story, um, you could look to historical precedents, um, plenty of confirmation struggles uh, that have happened over the last several decades as inspiration. And the timing just so happened that uh, as the show was airing, the, the nation was witnessing one um, in real life. So you give up Albany and Buffalo for uh, Cedar Rapids and Des Moines and uh sign up with the Dean campaign. Why did you you and Jay uh, go west uh, to work for the Vermont governor? So uh, after I graduated from college, uh, I sort of stumbled down the path of the arts. Uh, but Jay launched into this meteoric career in politics. So he went on to work for uh, Bradley, for Hillary, and then eventually uh, Howard Dean. And at the ripe old age of 26, he was Dean's national spokesman for that presidential race. Uh, at the time, uh, I didn't have a lot going on, and Jay said, how about you come out to Iowa and work on press advance uh, with us? And I said, sure, why not? So I packed up, moved out to Des Moines, uh, and had both an exhilarating and uh, devastating experience. Exhilarating in that you know, Dean was a, a front runner. He was speaking out against the war in ways that no one else would. He had a, a real uh, progressive following. Uh, and we really felt like this guy was going to get elected. Um, devastating when he came in such a distant third in Iowa and, and not too long after had to throw in the towel. Uh, so uh, when I got back to New York after that, uh, I was itching to write. I hadn't written anything in six months. And, and before, before you get back to New York, let's hear uh, how Governor Dean sounded that last night in Iowa. We're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. But Willimon, how long has it been since you've heard the Dean scream? Uh, It's been a while. I helped set up that event, in fact. Uh, And what's unfortunate about what you just played, like so much of the media did, uh, I believe it was 672 times in one news cycle, is that uh, it's not really reflective of the event itself. No, not at all. um, Because... uh, I mean, not to get too technical here, but no. Let's you, do it. This is polyamorous. We get very technical. <laughs> when you when you you, set, you have toe marks in one of your episodes <laughs> at the beginning. That is a very technical uh, attribute of your show. So let's let's talk about. Well, it. as I'm sure you and many of your listeners are aware, uh, 
the advanced team will will use something called a malt box. Yeah, of course. Uh, and the malt box is where all of the news organizations put their feeds into so that you can have one microphone. And that one microphone, um, it, it prevents you from having that giant bouquet of microphones that you saw mm-hmm. in the 80s or before. Uh, and what that one microphone also does is create a very localized radius of uh, sound that it's picking up, meaning that anything more than a few feet away uh, is on a much sort of lower level. Um, uh, and that's so the news organizations can get a clear sound bite uh, yep. to air on the 11 o'clock news. Um, what is And a nicer picture of the podium so you don't have 35 microphones at the podium. Absolutely. Uh, but what is uh, a little disingenuous about that is that if the energy and, and, and volume of the event in the crowd is a big part of the overall picture, that's not going to be picked up by the mic. So you could hear in that uh, audio clip you just played, you could hear the crowd in the background, but they were so loud at the actual event, you couldn't even hear Dean. So he was trying to scream over the crowd, which was screaming far louder than he was. Um, So out of context, of course, he looks a little unhinged. Um, But if you were in that room, it didn't seem that way at all. Uh, Now, there's a bigger issue, which is... uh, the narrative at that time was here's a guy who might not be electable, who um, might be a little uh, unhinged from time to time, uh, and who wasn't prepared uh, or 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 uh, had the gravitas to be president of the United States. Now that's a big narrative, and uh, the media doesn't construct those narratives. They're not they're not that powerful. What they tend to do. Uh, is the the best of journalists have a sense for what narrative is bubbling forth among um, the people. And then they find the stories that will confirm um, or address that narrative. So that narrative was already there. And if you look, and having spent uh, you know many, many a, a long day side by side with a candidate, there are clips, uh, audio, visual, um, photo stills, uh, dozens a day, which you could use out of context um, to uh, tell a story that is not necessarily, um, you know, uh, reflective of the event, but is reflective of the bigger narrative. And most of the times, those sort of dissolve into the mist because they're not out of context. They make no sense. Uh, but that, if if it hadn't been the Dean scream, it would have been something else because that's a narrative people wanted to hear. You said in retrospect that you had a sense either Jay did or Trippy did or Trisha did that that the uh, wheels might have been coming off the campaign earlier than a young advance man might have felt in in Iowa. How did you reconcile going back to Washington that that the die had already been cast before the the votes might have been uh, tabulated in the caucus? Uh, I wasn't going back to Washington. That night I helped set up the event at the caucus, and then I, I quickly went to the airport to help set up the plane to New Hampshire. Right. Um, uh, I didn't personally know that he was going to lose that night. Jay told me in retrospect that at the very top levels they knew they were going to lose. I don't think anyone knew that they were going to lose as badly as they did. But a few weeks out, they they recognized that some of the numbers were off, and they we didn't have the on gr- the ground support in the state that um, you know the the leadership of the uh, campaign assumed that they had had. Um, the the big problem, of course, wasn't losing; it was losing so badly. Uh, and when we were on the flight to New Hampshire. Uh, all of us were bummed out that we had lost. We had no idea that the Dean Scream would take over the airwaves tomorrow, so no one was lamenting that fact yet. Uh, but you know, it was just too much ground 
uh, to make up for when he had been the presumptive front runner with, at the time, uh, one of the biggest uh, budgets in, in primary history. Uh, so Jay told me later that it was very tough um, to maintain enthusiasm and, and a smiling face in those last couple of weeks in Iowa, knowing that they were going to take a big hit. Um, but I think everyone was shocked by by the uh, the margin. So after Schumer, after Hillary, after Bradley, and after Dean, it's time to get back to uh, your training and your art and your artistry. How do you make the segue back into play playwriting and and eventually what became Farragut North? Uh, so after the Dean campaign, I, after he threw in the towel in Wisconsin, I came back to New York. I hadn't written anything for a while and. and uh, and politics was on the brain. I'd never worked on any of those campaigns as research. I never really thought about uh, dramatizing them. I truly was working on them because I wanted those people to win. Uh, but I felt that I knew this world now. Uh, and whatever I didn't know, I knew enough people in that world to answer my questions. Uh, so I began working on what became Farragut North, which later became the movie Ides of March. Uh, and uh, a few months later, I had my first draft. Um, and I, I spent the next few months rewriting uh, after that and sent it out to 40 theaters across the country, and they all turned it down. Uh, and so I put it away. Two years later, I signed up with my current agent, and he wanted to send it out. And I, uh, I said, good luck. I've sent it to a lot of theaters already. Uh, but he, he gave it a try, and um, uh, we got immediate responses from commercial theater producers in New York, uh, other theaters around the country sent it out to LA as simply a writing sample, hoping I'd get some meetings. And before I knew it, I got a call saying Warner Brothers wanted to option it uh, with Clooney and DiCaprio producing. And then things happened very quickly. How did it get sniffed at Warner Brothers, and how did it get into Clooney's and DiCaprio's hands? Well, there's there's sort of uh, contradictory stories from all those people as to who had it first. Uh, But uh, there was, at the time, a, uh, a young executive at Warner Brothers um, uh, Jesse Ehrman, who had gotten his hands on it and was really taken by it and passed it up to his boss, Kevin McCormick, who was uh, a VP of production at the time. And Kevin had a discretionary fund and could option things without needing anyone's approval. Um, now, the the Smokehouse folks, Clooney's company and, and, uh, and DiCaprio's company, Appian, Appian Way, some of them will claim that they had it and gave it to Warner Brothers. But uh, I think it uh, it was just one of those weird sort of um, viral things where this play, for whatever reason, connected with some people in L.A. and and very quickly found its way into a lot of people's hands at the same time. Uh, and, and, uh, and then, of course, once uh, I teamed up with uh, Clooney and DiCaprio and Warner Brothers uh, with those names attached, uh, suddenly the play made its way all over Hollywood and... and you know, there were a lot of meetings, a lot of things offered to me, and, and it opened up a lot of doors. Uh, there had been a lot of years leading up to that moment, a lot of hard work, uh, a lot of um, failure. Uh, but once that moment happened, uh, things things moved um, quicker than I ever could have imagined. One of those doors that opens is David Fincher and his team. How did that begin? Uh, about three years ago, I got a call from my agent saying Fincher would like to speak to you about working on House of Cards. I had heard of the BBC version because I knew it was a, a cult classic. In, let's in let's the just UK. hear a little bit on e- of Ian Richardson as Francis Hurkett. Hi, Minister. Teddy, didn't realize you'd be here. Pull up a chair, Francis. Now, I've had a careful look at this uh, memorandum of yours. You're proposing a very radical change. I'd like you to tell me why. 
Well, uh, just in general terms. All right. We have been in power longer than any party since the war. It's a new kind of challenge. We need to show that we are not stagnating, that we are capable of self-renewal. That's so good, isn't it? Yeah, Ian Richardson uh, just did an astounding job in, in the original BBC version. Um, Leading to trickle-down diplomacy. Uh, yeah, in, yeah. In the chief of staff's office uh, right. many years later for right. Francis Underwood. Uh, I, I, so I had not seen the BBC version, but obviously uh, had meant to see it for quite a while. And, and having a conversation with David Fincher was a pretty good excuse to sit down and watch it. So I did. And, uh, and I, I fell in love with it. I, I actually at the time didn't have uh, really much of a desire to work either on another political story uh, or in television because of the huge time commitment that it take, takes up. But uh, but uh, I immediately started to have all sorts of ideas, how to Americanize it, how to make it our own, how to expand it and deepen it. Uh, so I got on the phone with Fincher. We shared a lot of the same instincts, uh, decided that it would be fun to team up and work on this. Uh, uh, also on that phone call was Eric Roth and Josh John and two of the other producers. Uh, and uh, for the next year, I worked on the first episode. Uh, and during that process- Alone, or did you get the team together by then? No, alone. Yeah. I wrote it. I mean, by myself. But You're out in L.A., I think. No, I was here in New York. Okay, okay. Yeah, and uh, of course, as I w- finished a draft, I would share it with David and Eric and Josh, and would jump on the phone and talk about it. But it was very casual, just the just me at the computer, and then the four of us getting on the phone every once in a while. And somewhere along the way, uh, uh, we started engaging with Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright. Uh, David, of course, had a relationship with Kevin going back to seven. And uh, and they produced the social network together, uh, and, uh, and and David knew Robin as well. So we slipped them the script and and uh, engaged with them. And and luckily for us, they came on board. So we had our two stars, and we had a script. Uh, and then it was time to find a home. Let's hear a little bit of Robin Wright in her iconic performance before House of Cards. Will you marry me? I'd make a good husband, Jenny. You would, Forrest. But you won't marry me. You don't want to marry me. Why don't you love me, Jenny? I'm not a smart man. But I know what love is. That's Tom Hanks as Forrest Gump and Robin Wright as Jenny. You've said... And well, you've and written- of course, uh, Forrest Gump was written by one of our EPs, uh, Eric Roth. Uh, and, and I worked at the Shady Oak Movie Theater. It was one of my very first job in St. Louis. And it was one screen. And, and for a couple months, Forrest Gump showed. I've seen that movie many, many times. And the other huge iconic role uh, for Robin Wright, uh, of course, was The Princess Bride. Of course. Written by a, a friend and mentor of mine, William Goldman, uh, the extraordinary screenwriter. Inconceivable. Yeah. Well, and I know Wally Shawn as well. Um, Wally Shawn's the best. produce a movie uh, that he and Andre Gregory are doing with Jonathan Demme. So, small world. Uh, so, small world. Uh, you've written and your your partners have said that you you got your first choice on all on all the major cast members with Kevin and Robin. How when you're thinking of Ian Richardson and the other ca- members of the original cast, uh, what are you thinking you're really going to need to bring this show to life whether it's at HBO or Netflix? Uh well, I, the, 
every show comes down to its cast. Uh, all the scripts, all the cameras, all the crew, the building of the sets, that's all there simply so that we can uh, uh, film uh, actors behaving on screen. That's what people tune in to watch or stream in to watch. Uh, they want to see uh, uh, people uh, going through real dramatic emotional moments uh, with each other in ways that are compelling and exciting. Uh, so uh, the most important decisions you can possibly make on any show is who are going to be those people that are saying the words and that you're going to put in the room together. So we put a huge amount of energy and time and thought into who did we want for each of these roles. and. Uh, and we, and as you know, Fincher said off in the press, and I've repeated, we, we got everyone that we wanted, uh, which is very rare. Uh, usually, some sort of scheduling thing gets in the way, or someone doesn't connect with the script, and and we got very, very lucky. Kevin has said that uh, he's not sure he fully knows who Francis Underwood is yet. Uh, that may come in season two. Uh, he says that in the way that he talks directly to the camera, certainly a device from the original show, but uh, that's to be interpreted as this rare opportunity to hear Frank talk to his best friend, the only person who he might trust to say the things that he does. What has it been like, after we hear a few of Frank's signature asides, to come up with those the aphorisms, the diction, the, the sayings that, that Congressman Underwood has? Let's hear a little bit from Frank. The Sentinel, South Carolina's premier military college. They taught me the values of honor, duty, and respect. They also hazed me, tried to break me, and senior year nearly expelled me when I volunteered for a Senate race and my studies suffered. But that didn't stop them from soliciting a hefty sum for their new library 30 years later. How quickly poor grades are forgotten in the shadow of power and wealth. I'm not going to lie. I despise children. There. I've said it. As we used to say in Gaffney, never slap a man while he's chewing tobacco. How do you how do you create Frank talking to the camera, and what's that all about for your audience? Uh, it's it's an organic process. Uh, we try a lot of different things out, uh, and and um, you know a lot of it comes out of speaking with Kevin. Uh, when I wrote the the first episode, I was working a little bit in a void uh, because we hadn't cast Kevin yet, and, and it was all in the imagination. But one of the beautiful things of working on a television show is that you're shooting it over the course of eight or nine months, and you're spending a lot of time with your cast, uh, so you can have a real dialogue with them, um, and uh, there's a real give and take. And, and as you watch what they're doing on screen, uh, it becomes apparent what's working and what's not, and, and certainly they have thoughts about that. So I, I think a lot of those asides came out of um, uh, responding to what Kevin was doing as much as uh, trying to think of what he should do. Uh, and, uh, and every once in a while, you know, he'll throw a glance at the camera that doesn't even involve words. Uh, and those will be moments that he just finds and chooses himself. Uh, and so, you know, you, you have to walk a, a very sort of careful line with the direct addresses. Uh, you want them to allow the audience to have access and intimacy with your hero, but you don't want them to weigh things down or break up the action too much. Uh, and, and you want them to be clever and fun and entertaining, but you don't want them to feel sort of clever in a manufactured way. And sometimes we get it, you know, we nail it better than other times. Uh, but, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a fun thing to work with, and, and I think it elevates the drama. So you and David have the pilot script and pretty much open to v various cable outlets that might be interested in it. How does it end up in 
Netflix hands? That that was all over the course of really a couple days. Really? Uh, we sat down with a number of networks. Um, they came to David's office and sat down with us, and we talked about what we wanted, and and we said meetings brokered by your agents to say it's going to be it's going to be auctioned now and over the next few days and line up, and you created that schedule of meetings. Yeah, I mean that's that's something similar to that, uh, and. Uh, uh, they had all been given the script and knew who was involved, and and we had said very clearly we want a full season guaranteed. We don't want to do a pilot. Uh, a pilot's what that term refers to is you shoot an episode and then the network decides whether they want to order more or or air it at all. Uh, and I'm we, all too familiar having <laughs> done a pilot. So yeah, and so you know we'd put a lot of time o- over a year of effort into this. We had uh, what we thought was a pretty great team, and we were confident. Uh, so we wanted that sort of commitment. Uh, that's a lot to ask. Uh, a lot of networks, no matter what the names are, are nervous about that. Um, meanwhile, uh, we had, c- had come to our attention that Netflix was interested in getting into the original programming game. Uh, we didn't know what that meant or what it would look like, uh, but we certainly wanted to sit down with them. It seemed novel and interesting. Uh, so we did. And right off the bat, they said, we want to offer you two seasons up front, and we also want to give you creative control. Uh, now, and a hundred million dollars. <laughs> well, when when you have a company um, that's as big and powerful and forward thinking as Netflix, willing to make a commitment like that on their first try, uh, that's definitely something to be taken seriously. And uh, and we did. And w- when we took a step back and thought about uh, the potential of of where streaming services were going, um, how this really was the future of television, uh, and you know certainly the the two seasons up front and the creative control were attractive to us as artists. Uh, it just it became a no brainer. And and there's a bit of rebel in all of us on this team. You know none of us had done TV before. We didn't know what we were doing. Um, we just want to tell a great story. Uh, and the idea that our first go at TV really wouldn't even be TV at all. I think uh, we found both exciting and and uh, a bit of music at the same time uh, and we decided just to jump in head first and and uh, and team up with uh, a company that also hadn't done TV so next step you got to fill out a roster of writers for your writers room and you got to find sets and locations and and zero in on Baltimore and whatever you can make work in Washington tell us about those two parallel tracks create the the writing and, and the creative process and the production process I hired about half a dozen writers, uh, a diverse group of people in, uh, in terms of backgrounds. Uh, some some of them are mostly playwrights. Others had worked in TV quite Rick a bit. Rick Cleveland had done West Wing, I know. Yes, right. he, he, I believe he did a season of West Wing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I... Uh, old pal of mine, uh, Sam Foreman, who I'd written my first pilot with. Some of these were people that um, you know I knew, like Sarah Treem, for instance, yep. uh, who I knew from the theater world, uh, and and a mixture of people I knew and didn't know, and people uh, of, with very different voices. Because what was important to me um, was uh, people who could come up with ideas or moments that I never would have been able to think of myself, uh, and. Uh, everyone brought uh, different strengths to the to the room. Uh, so I, I moved out to L.A. Uh, and w- rented a house, a three-story house in Venice. I lived on the top floor. The writer's room was on the bottom floor and offices on the second floor. So my commute was two flights of stairs. Because and that was close to David and that was close to writing talent? It was close to MRC and Netflix. Uh, a few of the writers were based out there. Some of them moved out there. Um, but at the time, uh, yeah, it, being close to Netflix and, and uh, the... Uh, other EPs um, seemed like a smart idea. Uh, and so 
we worked for seven months and we ended up with 13 drafts. Now, a lot of those drafts I ended up rewriting later and making some big changes story-wise during production that required uh, a, you know, a significant rewriting. But we had, had a pretty good idea of, of where we were at after those seven months. Um, and then, you know, we got up to the prep phase where we needed uh, to build our sets, as, as you mentioned, and figure out where we were going to shoot this. And Maryland made a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, it was close to D.C. if we wanted to shoot down there. Um, uh, would have loved to have shot everything in D.C., but the District of Columbia is pretty small. There's not a lot of places where you, you can... You mentioned Homeland Security gives you some headaches. Uh, yeah, it's it's not that they give us headaches. They're doing their job. They, yep. they want to keep our capital safe. And when you roll up with 20 trucks uh, next to the Washington Monument, uh, it's a security concern. Even if we're just making a movie, uh, I mean, Argo is a good example. <laughs> you could use that for in a nefarious way, I suppose. Um, so, so there's a lot of restrictions post 9-11. Uh, and we have a great relationship with the D.C. Film and TV TV commission. They do everything they can to facilitate shooting in D.C. But, but for instance, like setting up sound stages in, in D.C. for noise levels um, in terms of traffic, a whole host of reasons is, is very difficult. Uh, and shooting in D.C. is difficult um, in terms of locations. Uh, so Baltimore is not too far away. Uh, there's a lot of locations there that, that look a lot like D.C. Some Washingtonians may disagree with me um, on that, and certainly we can't recreate every aspect of D.C. there. Uh, but, but there's a great tax incentive in Maryland. Um, a lot of shows have been shooting there, like Veep, The Wire is a great example, yep. uh, Game Change. Uh, and we were able to build stages in Edgewood, Maryland, uh, where we could really control the sound and traffic and access. Uh, and so it just it made sense. And what are the main sets you're building? Uh, the the we I think we have about two hundred thousand square feet, two warehouses that we converted into sound stages, and the big sets are most of the stuff you see in the congressional hallways and offices are on stage. Uh, Russo's apartment, Zoe's apartment, uh, the Underwood residence is on the stages. Each of those floors is comprised of a different set. The Oval Office. Um, uh, it's a perfect Oval Office. Uh, why do you have President Walker uh, sits in a bunch of different places? Usually, you know, our president sits uh, on the left-hand chair in front of the fireplace under Washington's uh, portrait. It depends. Uh, different presidents sit in different places. Uh, and you uh, have that on authority. <laughs> uh, we've looked at. I've looked at countless pictures of different presidents in the Oval Office uh, to try to get a sense of what the sort of geopolitics of of, of where people sit. Um, uh, have have uh, you know how that's played out over the years? Because um, you know, thinking about where people are in the room definitely um, influences uh, the power dynamics of that room. Vice uh, President Matthews never could have got away with the scene of walking in alone, sitting there and stealing a pen. Uh, that's not entirely true, in fact. Um, I mean, you may have had a different experience in your White House, uh, but I've spoken to people uh, for whom you know they they said it, it would. It, it's maybe unlikely, uh, but not. Uh, no one's going to stop the vice president if he chooses to walk in there, um, a, a, at least in some White Houses. So, uh, you know, in terms of in terms of uh, President Walker sitting in a lot of different places, well, sometimes it's also just you want visual diversity. Right. You want to look for different ways right. to shoot the room so it, it doesn't start to feel tired. Um, uh, a lot of my friends in Washington and people who have met because of the show uh, feel that it's... Uh, probably, um, in, in their opinions, um, one of the more, if not the most authentic show that they've seen about D.C. Uh, in, in recent history. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, that's 
that's a that's something that I want to maintain. Uh, there are times when we have to exaggerate or simplify for the sake of drama, or where we'll fudge the rules a little bit. Uh, but almost everything you see in House of Cards is absolutely plausible. In some cases, it might be unlikely, uh, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. And if someone had said to you in 2006 that two years later you would have the first black president of the United States, a lot of people would have thought that was unlikely or implausible. Uh, I think the political world constantly surprises us with things that haven't happened before. Uh, and so when you're making up a story, you ask those questions. Uh, and uh, the fun part is that you actually get to play it out and see what it would look like. Um, oftentimes, uh, though, the truth is stranger than fiction. How good are Freddie's ribs? Uh, I they're, they're really good. I mean, you know, we when you see them on uh, screen, uh, you know, we don't we don't have a giant uh, sort of buffet of his ribs, um, you know, sitting there for everyone to munch on. Uh, the, those are props. Uh, but there's a lot of great ribs in Baltimore and Maryland, um, and uh, and oftentimes in craft services, uh, ribs will show up. Uh, so uh, yeah, we're all you know those of us that are that are not vegetarians are, are definitely ribs fans. So you get the order from Netflix, you've created the staff, the room has churned out 13 scripts, you've created sets in Baltimore, you've done filming in the Baltimore, Washington area. Uh, Post-production comes, and it's time to uh, share this creation with the world. What's We've never seen anything like a 13-episode upload on February 1st, and the allowance of binge viewing from day one. We binge view The Wire many years later. We binge view uh, Deadwood. We binge view all these great shows when we weren't tuned in week by week when they first premiered. But what's it like to see your creation available, all 13 episodes, for all of your audience at one time? I think you bring up a really great point that uh, there have been plenty uh, of examples of binge watching um, in years prior to our show being released. Uh, and what we were doing is really responding to a trend that was well underway. Uh, people with the advent of uh, on demand, DVR, streaming services, box sets uh, have been binge viewing for a while now. Uh, and they increasingly expect to be able to determine what they watch, when they want to watch it, how they want to watch it, on what device they want to watch it on. Uh, so what Netflix did is said, uh, we're willing to exploit that trend with the way in which we deliver the series. Uh, why not put that power in people's hands from day one, uh, the power that they've come to expect really anyway? Uh, so, so in a lot of ways, we were just in the right place at the right time with the right partners who had the guts to do it. Um, but but I think, uh, I think you, what you will see is that this is going to uh, become an in increasing way that shows are delivered to their viewers. Uh, certainly Netflix plans to do that with all of its upcoming shows, uh, but I think you'll see other networks uh, start to uh, consider that uh, as an as a option and then you know actually follow suit. Was there a debate between you as the creative team and Netflix about, well, should we do it week by week or should we... Not so much as a, a debate, as a discussion. What were the pros and cons of of, uh, of going either way? Uh, and then we talked about options in the middle. What if we do it in chunks, you know, like four episodes, then five, then four? Um, and I think everyone uh, naturally sort of veered towards 13 because we felt like 
you know, Netflix is doing TV for the first time. We were all doing TV for the first time. And shouldn't we be new also in the way in which we deliver it? And and people's experience on Netflix is being able to completely control their viewing experience. Why shouldn't that be true of their original content as well as their library? Uh, so I think we all leaned in that direction, but, but we certainly talked about all the options. And I wrote the show uh, so that it would work either way uh, because even though you give people the opportunity to binge watch it's not required you, know, you can watch it on a slow burn if you want you can watch it over the course of a couple of years if you want um, that first season so it should be able to work uh, as a binge and also work as something you watch slowly what's important for me to say to listeners uh, which I didn't know until a few weeks ago till I started watching House of Cards is some of the reading you 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 go through about House of Cards is that it's a it's great television, but the viewing experience is compromised because people are watching on their mobile devices or on their iPads or on their laptops. And so, Bo Willimon, what I did a couple last year is I go out to Best Buy, I buy one of the Samsung smart TVs, and I don't really know what that smart TV button does until it's time to say, I want to start watching House of Cards. And you press that button and and you, it's connected to the internet, and up comes a menu of Hulu, Netflix, and other services. You input, you take advantage, by the way, listeners, of a free free month trial on Netflix. But you give them your credit card number, and if they don't, uh, if you don't decide to stop the service after a month, they'll bill you month to month, just like you used to when you got the DVDs. And you press, look at view shows, and look at the menu, and there's Kevin in the Lincoln Memorial style chair. And you press the, you click on that, and up, up comes the 13 episodes. You press play on the pilot, and the viewing experience and the high definition is just as good as if it's on 8 p.m. at HBO. Uh, absolutely, no. I mean, this is high definition, and um, and, and with people buying 65-inch high-definition TVs these days, uh, in some ways, it's better than the experience that you could even get in the theater um, if you're watching in a movie theater. Uh, so I. I you know, in terms of um, the viewing experience, uh, I think in general, people would far prefer to determine for themselves what a proper viewing or satisfying viewing experience is rather than be told um, what that is. And, uh, you know, you mentioned something earlier about uh, water cooler moments that, that, that that's gone. Well, um, yes and no. The water cooler moment of people getting together, uh, you know, on a Monday morning, having watched something the night before, um, maybe so, but that was gone anyway. Um, people who are watching things on Sunday night or Thursday night or whatever, oftentimes are DVRing it and watching it uh, three weeks later. So that's already out going out the door. Uh, and I think the whole idea of uh, scheduling TV shows for certain days and certain times uh, will fall away. Uh, and the reason that is, is is there's no longer just 24 hours in a day. Uh, the only reason shows were ever once a week at a given time is that goes all the way back to live television days in the 50s when you actually had to shoot at a given time on a given day. Uh, and then when stuff began to be taped, uh, sitcoms that had three cameras and a live audience, the live audience needed to show up at a certain time and you needed the week in order to write the next script and rehearse it. Um, but even then, it wasn't necessarily required. It was just something we were conditioned for. Well, that conditioning has just become the norm. Um, and 
uh, one of the reasons that you needed a certain day and time was also because you were selling advertising. So there were certain prime time slots where you could sell advertising for more. Uh, but when you look at Netflix, when you look at HBO or Showtime or a lot of uh, paid and now even basic cable channels, commercials are not a factor. So why does it matter? Why do ratings even matter um, in the same way? You're not selling advertising time. Uh, so you know, now that the, any distinction between the television and the internet has fallen away and will continue to dissolve uh, as smart TVs are proof, uh, I, I think that you know, kids that are growing up now have really no conception of the sort of slot schedule that many of us who are a little bit older uh, grew up with. Uh, and uh, they might watch shows and have no idea even what network they're on or what time and day of the week they're normally scheduled for. Before we get to our final couple questions with Bo Willimon, I just want to hear a little bit of a conversation between Frank Underwood and his ex-press secretary, Remy. You've made your point. Have I? I hope so. Such a waste of time. He chose money over power. In this town, a mistake nearly everyone makes. Money is the McMansion in Sarasota that starts falling apart after 10 years. Power is the old stone building that stands for centuries. I cannot respect someone who doesn't see the difference. Remy plays an important role in the beginning, middle, and end of the first season of House of Cards. Uh, what's the relationship between Frank and Remy, and, and, and what makes that unique in your series? Remy was a superstar press secretary uh, for Underwood um, years before, worked for him for eight years, uh, and then uh, cashed in. He left uh, in order to join the private sector, and he did so by uh, working for a major uh, lobbying firm. Uh, and when we first meet him in House of Cards, he's recently been promoted uh, to partner in that firm, which is a big deal for a guy his age. Uh, and so uh, he, he's really the face of lobbying for our show, um, you know, because of his connections with Underwood uh, and because they have a lot of shared interests. Uh, we see them at times working together and at times against one another. Uh, and and it, it, it's our way of dramatizing the very complex relationship that politicians have with lobbyists. So in terms of some of the roles in Washington that you dramatize in House of Cards, the lobbyists, the journalists, particularly the female journalists who've had a few things to say about the way that, that, that Zoe and her, her colleague at the Herald are portrayed, um, and also the, the people who toil in government like Remy was when he's a press secretary, Doug Stamper. Uh, what kind of feedback are you getting from people who, whose lives you actually portray in House of Cards? Well, all of our characters are fictional, but of course, as I mentioned before, we want the worlds to be authentic. Uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of people in the media who have very divergent opinions about Zoe Barnes and Janine Skorsky. Uh, uh, of course, Zoe Barnes, played by Kit Mara, is a, a young, ambitious reporter who um, is working her way up the ladder. And, and Janine uh, Skorsky, played by Constance Zimmer, has been around the block a, a few times. Uh, uh, I think one of the things that a lot of people in the media take issue with is that Zoe is uh, the lengths to which she's willing to go in order to get her stories. Um, now, uh, here's the, the thing. We are not telling the story of Woodward and Bernstein. Right. Uh, Zoe Barnes is not seeking the truth. She's seeking access and influence. Is that a representation of pure journalistic ethos? No, it's the exact opposite of that. It's everything you're told is wrong in J school. Uh, but those reporters exist. And I know of at 
least a handful of uh, real cases in which uh, reporters have slept with sources for stories. Anyone who doesn't think that happens in the media world is out of their mind. Um, and while it might be rare, uh, it is not, um, you know, it, 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 while it might be the exception to the rule, it's definitely, it, def it definitely is there and it happens. Um, but remember also when Zoe first approaches Francis, uh, while she may show some cleavage and play that card, uh, Francis laughs at her for that. Um, he doesn't take it seriously. And really the way that she uh, convinces him is with her mind, not with her body. Uh, later, that transactional relationship of I will print your stories in order to have access um, evolves into a sexual one, uh, a complicated one that is really more has to do with uh, power than attraction. Uh, but it doesn't start that way. Uh, and Janine Skorsky, of course, later in the season, um, you know, while she's accused Zoe of sleeping with people uh, in order to get her stories, uh, as they befriend one another, says that is not a good strategy for advancement. You know, I, I have tried that and uh, it only got me so far and actually ended up hindering me in the long run. Um, you know, so so people have within our show uh, a spectrum of opinions and points of views about that strategy. Uh, and uh, it, so we're not trying to make any comment about the media world that it's all like that. But but we are telling the story of ambition and telling the story of power, not telling the story of journalistic journalistic ethos. And um, and I think that's uh, people who, who don't want to stomach that and that that is a reality um, find that hard to swallow. Uh, but, you know, the media, you know, it's interesting that they, they make a living by holding up a mirror to society. And yet oftentimes uh, as navel gazing as they can be writing about one another, when, uh, when people turn the mirror on them, uh, particularly in dramatic form, uh, they get very, very uncomfortable. Last jaw, like Bob Woodward <laughs> found last week. Um, well, but isn't it extraordinary how much was written about that by the media? And it's totally how interesting and important truly is that story? And at the not end of the at day, all, you know. Um, but that's the media writing about the media, which they love to do, uh, yet don't really want to admit how uh, sort of uh, you know self uh, you know infatuated they are with with their own stories and 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 look you know we don't we're not trying to attack the media in fact everyone's fair game it, it's interesting when people uh have have so much vitriol about zoe barnes from the media and yet have no problem with uh, peter russo i mean here's a guy who who lies to his loved ones who lies to the people and 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 yet a lot of viewers and media folks end up rooting for him. I mean, they they have no problem with uh, Francis Underwood killing someone, uh, but they do have a problem with Zoe Barnes uh, using every tool that's available to her in order to get ahead. Um, and so, you know, it's it's uh, I, I welcome that sort of um, reaction. Strong reactions are better than no reactions. Uh, and I love um, the dialogue that it's generated. So for the young man to wrap up, uh, Willimon, who was a barista to uh, to finance his uh, his writing work early on in his life, who now has to manage a room of writers working on the second season of House of Cards, who uh, on various nights will take to Twitter and say a half hour for any question you may have. I'll how, be doing that tomorrow. I usually do it on Fridays. How are you dealing with the fandom and the celebrity and the need and the, the demands on your time and putting a new season together? Uh, 
Well, I mean, they're, they're, I don't have to worry about celebrity. I'm the farthest thing from a celebrity. Uh, I'm a guy who shows up to work like anyone else and, and puts in my 40 to 80 hours a week um, working hard for a job that I love. Uh, and, and I feel very lucky to be in that position and, uh, and surrounded by collaborators who share that same sort of work ethic and passion. Certainly creating a season of a television show is a monumental task. Um, there's a million challenges. Uh, but, uh, you know, I... I, I can't possibly complain. I mean, it's in any way, it's it's a dream come true. Um, we have the resources uh, to make 13 hours, quality hours of television. I get to work with the best people in the business, um, and uh, and and it's everything that I've always hoped for. So, um, you know, I, I'm just trying to enjoy it uh, every moment that I can, while while I'm also, um, you know, hard at work uh, trying to. Uh, do as a good a job as I can. If you can't tell us any of the uh, plot points that might be coming up in season two, can you tell us about any new sets that need to be built down? Not in at Maryland? all. I can't say a word. If I told you about the sets, I'm kind of indirectly telling you about the story. Uh, and uh, and if I told you, you'd have to tell everyone. Bo Willimon, executive producer, showrunner, creator of House of Cards. Thanks so much for spending some time with us on Polyopolis. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.